Timeless Voyager Radio. Self-development radio for the open mind. Interviews with leading edge authors and speakers. Psychic phenomena and the unexplained. UFOs. Extraterrestrial encounters. Government cover-ups. Alternative health care. New technologies. And now, Bruce Stephen Holmes for Timeless Voyager Radio. Hello everyone, this is Bruce Stephen Holmes, the Timeless Voyager, and I'm here today with Robert Lawrence, a student of the Urantia book. For those of you who are listening, Urantia is spelled U-R-A-N-T-I-A, and those of you who may remember a show I had a few weeks ago on the air with me that day, Barry Bedell, who explained to us that the word Urantia is actually the name of this planet that we live on, and the book... The Urantia book is a book divided into four parts, and as a matter of fact, I should probably tell those of you, the uh, part one is about the central and super universes, part two is about the local universe, part three is the history of Urantia, and part four is the life and teachings of Jesus, the story of the Son of God and the Son of Man. As I said before, I have with me today Robert Lawrence, and your uh, not only a student of the book of Urantia, but you specifically devoted a lot of your focus to part four. Is that mm -hmm. correct? That's correct. All right. Um, Robert, how did you first come across this Urantia book? Pretty much the same way that everyone comes across it, and that is that it was uh, given to me by a friend about 15 years ago. And... Uh, this is an old friend of mine I went to junior high school with, and uh, you know we've been close all of our lives. And he handed me this big, thick blue book and told me to read this. And I said, "What for?" And uh, he said, "Just trust me and read it." And uh, that began my study of the book. So you actually read all 2,000. <laughs> what was the number? 2,097 pages. 2,097 pages. Oh, yes, more than once. Okay, so the kind of person that reads a book that's 2,097 pages long is definitely a special individual in the first place. Not really when you consider the fact that it happened over a 15-year period. In other words, the Urantia book is not like a novel in the sense that you would sit down and read it cover to cover. Uh, it's much too complex and too much of a mental exercise. Uh, it can be done, and people have done it, but at the time I was first introduced to it, I wasn't as enthusiastic about it as, as I am now, and uh, I would read a little bit and then put it on my shelf for weeks or months and then pick it up and read it a little bit more. And uh, So I didn't really get interested in it um, in a full-time sense in, this, in the meaning that I referred to it or read it on an almost uh, daily or weekly basis until much later. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, life and teachings of Jesus. The New Testament, uh, let's perhaps, should we use the King James Version? That seems to be the most uh, widely most used. traditional version, yes. The account of Jesus' life um, according to the Bible, is really not that much, is it? Uh, approximately 29 days out of the life of Jesus are mentioned in the New Testament. That's accounting for the uh, repetitious accounts of the same event in the various Gospels. You know, each Gospel is in itself a, 
a story of the life of Jesus. And when you take into consideration the uh, accounts of the same events that are related in the various Gospels, uh, biblical scholars agree that there are roughly 29 or 30 days, separate days, that are mentioned out of his entire life. What would be your opinion on why it's like that in the first place? Do you have an opinion on that? Yes. Um, my opinion, and, and let me preface all of my remarks by saying that my opinions are, are based largely upon what I've learned from the Urantia book. And whenever I make a statement that sounds as though I'm making a statement of fact, what I'm saying is what the Urantia book has taught me, which I have since come to believe. And uh, relative to your question, one of the reasons why the account of the life of Jesus is so sketchy in the New Testament is because he forbade his apostles from keeping written records during his lifetime. And uh, presumably because of the problem that people have with written religious records. You know, they become crystallized, they become etched in stone, so to speak, and then later misinterpreted and applied to situations which might not be current and so forth. And he felt it would be better if people learned the essence of the religion of Jesus from other people than to have it written down somewhere and uh, and then translated and reinterpreted and altered and edited and for generations to come. And so his apostles didn't actually write anything down on paper until about 40 years after he was gone, when the Gospel of Mark was written, the first of the four Gospels. So would that put most of them in their... Uh 70s and 60s and 70s, perhaps? Uh, yeah. The Gospel of Mark is <clears throat> reported to have been written about 68, uh, I believe, 68 AD, which would have been roughly 35, 40 years after the death of Christ. And so that was the first. And actually, the Gospel according to Mark is the Gospel according to Peter, because it was written by. Um, um, a young boy by the name of John Mark, who was a young boy at the time of Jesus. Yeah, I was going to say, I'll bet a lot of these apostles then were very young. Uh, they were probably more. Oh yeah. Uh, more in the age of, of college age. Twenties, you know, early and thirties. Yeah. Uh, the Urantia book, by the way, contains a great deal of information about the apostles, who they were, their characteristics, their families, uh, tremendous amount of information. And um, why don't we be specific? Huh? Why don't we be specific? Okay. Take uh, one of the apostles, and why don't you just give us a little uh, rundown? Well, let me let me um, point at something else first. It's All very right. interesting as to how the Urantia book can be useful to a uh, person who is a biblical scholar or someone who is raised in the uh, church. Now, I'm a Baptist by uh, my upbringing, and more specifically, uh, the son of a Baptist minister. And so I was raised on the uh, the Bible and in the church. And I went to school at Baylor University, which is a Baptist university, and, and took some Bible courses there, too. So I was very familiar with the Bible long before I discovered the Urantia book. And so one of my primary interests after discovering the Urantia book, and specifically part four of the Urantia book, which deals with the life of Jesus, was the comparison of the two sources and to see how they complemented or contradicted each other, whichever the case might be. And uh, several years ago, a few years ago rather, that task was greatly facilitated by uh, a gentleman who now lives in Malibu. His name is uh, Professor Dwayne Fall. And uh, he was a law professor at Pepperdine University before his retirement. And he spent about six years meticulously cross-referencing the entire Bible with the entire Urantia book. 
so that a person who is interested in comparing the two and studying both books can readily cross-reference uh, anything that's mentioned in the Bible. Uh, you can cross-reference that to any possible mention of it in the Urantia book and vice versa. And so uh, in the course of teaching a class uh, a while back at a local church on the life and teachings of Jesus as based on the Urantia book, uh, we studied some specific questions that we wanted to try to shed some light on. And one of these was, who were the 12 apostles? Because uh, you may not be aware of it, but in the, in the Bible there are different lists, three different lists of who the 12 apostles were. Hmm. And biblical scholars have always had a problem with this, but they tend to dismiss it by saying that, well, this guy, this name, and this name are actually the same guy, because they have no other explanation for right. it. Right. And uh, for example, in in the book of Mark, um, it lists the apostles. It's verse uh, three sixteen through nineteen. Mark three sixteen okay. through nineteen for people that want to look this up. And it lists the apostles as uh, Simon, Andrew, James Zebedee, John Zebedee, Philip, Bartholomew, remember Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot. Now, on that list, there are two names, Bartholomew and Thaddeus, which don't... Uh, we don't hear those that often. ...which don't jive with the other accounts. Now, in the book of Matthew, for example, that's chapter 10, verses 2 through 4, Bartholomew is on that list, but there's no Thaddeus. In the place of Thaddeus is the name Lebeus or Lebius, or these are Greek names, and I'm not mm -hmm. too good at pronouncing them. And so you move on to Luke, chapter 6, verse 14 through 16, and you find no Lebius, you find Judas Alphaeus in that slot. And so there's you, two Judases in this list. Yes, Judas Alphaeus and Judas Iscariot right. are two different individuals. And uh, so that's in Luke, you find uh, the two Judases. Now you go over to John, and there is no list per se, but in throughout the course of the book of John, he mentions about nine of the twelve apostles. And in that list, or in that mention, he refers to Nathaniel as being one of the apostles, who doesn't appear at all on the other three lists. Hmm. And then also, he mentions Judas as Judas, not Iscariot. You know, he qualifies it by saying, mentioning Judas, comma, not Iscariot, to make the distinction between the two. And so we've got a question here is, who is Thaddeus? Who is Lebius? Who is Judas Alphaeus? Um, and who is Bartholomew, and who is Nathaniel, and who was the real apostle? You know, it's kind of like a what's my line thing or something. Right. And so this question always fascinated me, and I was happy to discover in the Urantia book that, that there was an answer to that, a very logical answer that made a lot of sense. First of all, in regard to Thaddeus and Lebius and Judas Alphaeus, they're all uh, related in the sense that James Alphaeus, who is on all of the lists, is the brother of Judas Alphaeus. So you got James and Judas Alphaeus. Now, they also went by the names Thaddeus and Labius, which were the Greek names for James and Judas Alphaeus. So, so these are the same two people. Yeah, James is the same as Thaddeus, and Judas Alphaeus is the same as Libius, or Libius, or however you pronounce it. And so in the, in the case of Mark, he's got James Alphaeus and Thaddeus listed. He's got the same guy on there twice, in other words, okay. to, the exclusion, to the exclusion of Judas Alphaeus or Lebius, James's brother. Now you go over to Matthew, you've got James Alphaeus, which is correct, and Lebius, which is 
Correct. It's the Greek name for his brother and the Hebrew name for him. Mm -hmm. So you go over to Luke, you've got James Alpheus and Judas Alpheus. They're Hebrew names, which is correct. And then you get over to John, and you just they, there's a mention of Judas, not Iscariot. And so that's readily explainable. You know, they're, they're the same guys. Now, the, the interesting part comes in with Bartholomew, though. Why is Bartholomew on the first three lists, and Nathaniel is on John's you know, mm -hmm. list or in John's book, and is not mentioned in the others? And that was the most interesting discovery that we made. And this had to do with the fact that, in fact, Nathaniel was the apostle as opposed to Bartholomew. And what had happened was that Nathaniel, being one of the twelve, uh, came into a falling out with Peter after the death of Christ because of the fact that after the death of Christ, the apostles, and Peter was pretty much the leader of them, and he became what would be the first pope of the Christian church in a sense. And uh, Peter and most of the other apostles were inclined to start preaching about Jesus, mm -hmm. uh, this new religion which came to be known as Christianity, which is about the life of Jesus and about the more spectacular events in his life, the miracles and the crucifixion and resurrection. This is not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught the gospel of the kingdom, you know, the brotherhood of man and uh, the fatherhood of God and uh, the Beatitudes. And so in the opinion of Nathaniel, the apostles should have continued to teach what Jesus taught after his death. They should continue to teach the religion of Jesus rather than teach this new religion about Jesus. And it got to the point to where he finally just gave up and walked out. And so Nathaniel left the apostles and went off to, to do his own thing, so to speak. Now some 30-odd 40 years later, whenever John Mark is writing the first gospel, the gospel according to Mark, which was in fact the gospel according to Peter because John Mark was Peter's protege, and all of the information that John Mark had essentially came from Peter. So you're getting Peter's version of the story right. in Mark, the first gospel. Now, at that time, whenever they were making up their list of the 12 apostles some 30, 40 years later, Peter was apparently not disposed to include Nathaniel on this list of future saints, so to speak, hmm. because of the fact that he walked out on him 30 years ago and they hadn't heard from him since. He was a quitter as far as Peter was concerned. He had a, a falling out with the main man and left, and Peter wasn't inclined to put him on the list of the apostles for posterity. And so who did he put on his place? Nathaniel's father, Bartholomew who Peter warmly regarded. He was a, an early Christian as well and was a good friend of Peter's. And so when Peter decided to scratch Nathaniel from the list, he had to put somebody on there because everybody knew there was 12 apostles. Right. So he put Bartholomew on in his place. And to this day, the first three gospels list him. By the way, the second gospel, Matthew, and the third one, Luke, were written with Mark in hand as a reference. And so everybody just kind of Kept, went along with Peter's list until John came along about 30 more years later at the turn of the century. The Apostle John was one of the, the 12 himself, and so he knew who the 12 were. And uh, being the forgiving guy that he is, you know, they call him the, God, the uh, Apostle of Love, uh, he put Nathaniel back on the list because hmm. he knew that that's where he belonged. And so that's why Nathaniel appears in John's account of who the Apostles were. 
But those little questions like that and, and little uh, contradictions or things that are that seem inexplicable can be a lot of light can be shed on them right. by using the Urantia version of it. We should talk a little bit about how the Urantia book came into being. Let's just devote a few minutes to it. Would you like to explain that to the audience? Well, the, the first thing to point out in that regard is that nobody really knows that. Anything that I say is speculation and apocryphal tales. And it's interesting to note that there is a reason for that. Um, one of the things that man has a tendency to do is really a time-honored tradition of mankind, and that is to exalt the teachers of divine truth while ignoring the teachings. In other words, somebody comes along and tells us something really marvelous, and so we build a statue and worship him and don't pay any attention to what he told us. And uh, they wanted the revelators, in the case of the Urantia book, wanted to avoid the development of a cult or the development of a some kind of uh, hero worship associated with the origin of the Urantia book. And so all of the information regarding where it actually came here from, how it got on the planet, uh, how it came into being is uh, a secret which five individuals took to their grave with them several years ago. The, the papers have been around since the 30s, and the book was originally published in 1955. So the no one knows for sure exactly how this revelation, which purports to be of extraterrestrial origin, made the process, the transition from out there to this book that you have in your hand. And uh, it was, I hesitate to use the term channeling because it has so many different meanings to so many different people, but in a sense, you know, it, by definition, that's the most accurate way to describe how it came into existence. So the, the, uh, the story uh, basically is that a anonymous person uh, channeled mm -hmm. this uh, supposed extraterrestrial information uh, for a particular amount of time, presented it to a group of people who later published it. Is that well? Correct? No, actually, the uh, it, it's somewhat different from that. Okay, I'll I'll tell you one of the apocryphal tales which seems to have the most credibility of all those that I've have heard and discussed with other students of the Urantia book. But it involved a gentleman in Chicago who had no background in the area of science and religion and philosophy and geology and anthropology and cosmology and all the things that are in this book. And um, he purportedly was making strange sounds, acting strange in his sleep. And his wife approached a uh, well-known Chicago psychiatrist by the name of Dr. William Sadler who in, in some circles has been referred to as the father of American psychiatry, a very well-established uh, you know, physician. And uh, he began to observe this gentleman whenever one of these events would occur and could not put his finger on what was happening. And uh, at one point in time, though, he decided to actually... Uh, Talk, tried to talk to him when he was in one of these states. And so he asked him a question. He said, who are you? And the response was, I'm a student visitor. And that began the dialogue, which eventually became the Urantia Papers, 196 papers. But the course those papers took was based on a group of uh, individuals which Dr. Stadler then assembled over a period of time. Other physicians, friends of his, uh, 
persons uh, in academic circles. At one time, the, the group grew to, I believe, about 70 individuals. And they would get together and formulate questions, which they would then present. And this gentleman, without any consciousness or apparent knowledge of what was going on, would provide the answers, which later became the Arantia Papers. And it took place over a period of, of uh, several years. You know, it wasn't a... So this was actually happening during the uh, height of Edgar Cayce, who was uh, well well known as uh, a sleeping prophet, so to yeah, speak. The, from the mid-20s to about 1934 is, is whenever the Urantia papers were complete in as much as they reached the form that they're in now. All right, that's very interesting. Let's uh, then come back to uh, Michael of Nebadon. Um Tell me, what does that mean? Well, first of all, where is Nebadon? Nebadon is the local universe which we are a part of. The Orange Book contains a great deal of cosmology in that it describes the, the structure of the universe, the entire master universe, and also the hierarchy of the uh, kingdom of heaven, if you will. And Nebadon is a local universe of 10 million inhabitable planets. And ours is one of those 10 million. And the, the uh, universe, is, the local universe, is broken down into uh, constellations. And constellations are broken down into systems, and systems contain planets. And so um, Michael of Nebadon is the supreme ruler, the sovereign of this local universe of 10 million planets. And Michael of Nebadon is also known on this planet as Jesus of Nazareth, or more specifically, Joshua ben Joseph, which was his true name. Jesus is the Greek is a Greek nickname uh, for Joshua. All right. So let's uh, let's play devil's advocate here, and uh, and <laughs> incidentally, we, <laughs> the devil is three different people too. We talked about that on the last show, but um, let's. Let's hit this thing square, just the way the uh, uh, fundamentalists would hit it. Is Jesus the Son of God, then? More correctly, a Son of God. And, and then who is Michael? What, who is this guy? I mean, is he between God and uh, No, there's a Jesus? much... There's a, no, Michael is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth <clears throat> is the uh, mortal incarnation of Michael. He was here on a bestowal mission. If I can back up a little bit, mm -hmm. in, in being the sovereign or the, what they call the creator son of the local universe, in effect, Michael of Nebadon is the uh, person who is responsible for the development of this particular universe. Now, the fundamentalists are going crazy at this point. Of course they are. Right, because, I mean, what we know uh, from, the, from the Bible is that there is God, there is Jesus, and there is us. And anything else? Yeah. Well, there's a that's somewhat self-serving in that that it gives us a lot more importance, you know, mm -hmm. than than reality in the sense that it makes us feel important to think that that there's that God only has one Son and and we got Him, and uh, that we're the only children of God, mm -hmm. the only planet in all the vast universe that has will creatures like us on it. And uh, but that's a somewhat naive view that was developed. Uh, a couple thousand years ago 
when we didn't have telescopes, when we didn't have astronomers, when we didn't have scientists, a long time before we knew what we know now relative to the scope of the universe and, and its makeup and so forth. And you've got to remember that the people that formulated these early uh, stories were not formulating them inaccurately, uh, deliberately, or out of some kind of sinister purpose, but they just told us what they knew. Mm -hmm. For example, if, if you were going to be a doctor today, you wouldn't be studying a medical text from the 18th or 19th century, because almost everything in there has since been discarded in favor of new scientific knowledge, which is either more accurate or more relevant. And religion is much the same, in that you have to constantly be open to new revelation. You know, Jesus himself at Pentecost uh, told us that that he was going to, or the Father was going to visit upon us uh, a new counselor called the Spirit of Truth, that whereby that all mankind from that point forward would have the capacity to know the truth when they see it or hear it without anybody else having to tell you that, well, this is true and this is mm -hmm. not, this is sacred and this is not. Now, do, the, do, do people interpret that already as the second coming of Jesus? Uh, not really. Or is that different from because the second Because this coming? happened. This happened at Pentecost. That's what Pentecost is about. You know, the the, the uh, indwelling of the Spirit of Truth. And see, at that point, so we, this, we call that enlightenment, in a sense. But you have to consider that after the crucifixion, and even after the resurrection, after Jesus had departed, his apostles were pretty bummed out. You know, because they were heavily dependent upon him. He was their master, and all of a sudden he was gone. And here they were left with the responsibility of carrying on his work. Now, hadn't they had this experience, though, that, that Jesus taught? Well, sure, they, they had had the experience of traveling with him and learning from him. But and I mean the experience, the, the Pentecostal experience. Well, not, or... at this, not yet. Well, I'm getting up to that. Okay. See, the, the point, uh, what happened was that after he had left them, uh, they were all gathered together. And then the, the Spirit of Truth came upon them, and at that point they became overjoyed, filled with enthusiasm and confidence, because at that point they had a grasp of the truth, and they knew from that point forward that, that the words would always be there anytime they had the opportunity or the forum. And the Spirit of Truth was provided for us for the very specific purpose of being able to discern for yourself what the truth is. And in other words, you don't need an, an, another individual to, to tell you what's true and what's not. You have that capacity, and God provided it himself. And there would have been no need for him to do that if truth was not going to be a continuing process, if, if its unfoldment was not going to be a continuing process. And so even today, you know, it's foolish in my mind to think that, that God cut us off whenever Jesus left the planet, that he no longer had any desire or need to communicate with us, and that this is all you're going to know from me, sorry, sign, you know, he's going to sign off, and that's the end of it. You know, I'm gone. From now on, it's up to you. And uh, the fact is that revelation is an ongoing thing. It's a continuous unfoldment. And if you're not open to that, if you're not looking for it, and if you're not listening, then you'll miss out on it. All right, so let's back up now. So we're talking about Michael of Nebadon, who is the... Uh, sovereign ruler. Um, he's what's left of the uh, chaos that occurred when Lucifer, uh, Satan, and uh, uh, Caligastia had their coup. Mm -hmm. uh, why don't you refresh our memory on that just well, for a the, moment? 
Michael is, uh, as I say, the sovereign of the universe, and this rebellion that you're referring to, which was known as the Lucifer Rebellion, which was the uh, precursor of our devil myths. Right, and we see this in the Bible, too. Sure. But we only see, what, two verses? or <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of little clues. That's where the parimony comes in handy. Yeah. <clears throat> you can, there's a lot of little clues that are dropped in the Bible that whenever you have read the Urantia book account, then all of a sudden you can see the verification in the scriptures okay. that, aha, so this they do jive. It's just that this is a one tiny little mention, and here's a whole chapter on the same subject. And so, <clears throat> at any rate, the Lucifer Rebellion was a system-level problem. It happened in our system of planets, which is about a thousand planets. And so it was just a very small part of Michael's kingdom. Okay. In as much as it, it wasn't what you would call a, a major rebellion in the scale of the universe. Well, let's look at the, uh, the uh, delineation of authority. Mm -hmm. uh, who was under Michael directly at this point, would you say? Uh, well, under Michael directly, you would go down to the constellation level. Well, and okay, you, I, let's and talk. Get on down to the planetary level. Right. We have Satania, which was the name of this area, right? <clears throat> it's the name of the system the of system. planets. Okay, so Satan was the... But it had no had no relationship to the, the name Satan, the man Satan, in other words. Satania is the name of a system of planets, but not it wasn't named after the person known as Satan, whom we now regard as the devil. Mm -hmm. In other words, it'd be just like saying that it wasn't the state of Georgia was named after your brother because his name is George. You know, I see. So there's no connection. But at any rate, um, Satan was Lucifer's assistant. Lucifer, okay, so Lucifer was actually the big guy. Lucifer was the system sovereign of our system, the system of Satania. And in other words, Lucifer was the head, uh, the ruler of that system of planets. So Satan just happened to have that same name, that's all. It was, yeah, right. And Satan was Lucifer's right-hand man. It was like his executive officer, his vice president, so okay. to speak. And uh, we became much more familiar with that name because Satan was the one who traveled around to the various planets to do Lucifer's bidding, okay. to speak for him, so to speak. Now, Caligastia was uh, the, the uh, lord the, of... The planetary prince, the, right. the, the spiritual leader, the ruler of this planet. All this happened about uh, 350,000 years ago. So well, that's that, not long ago. Uh, it was before I my mean, time. No, I'm just saying not long ago as far as time is concerned, though. Because no, not, we were in, looking this, not at in the framework of eternity. It was just years. a heartbeat ago. Yeah, right. Um, all right, I, I keep jumping around, but unfortunately, this is such a big book. It's need... a vast subject. All right, so we have this particular coup occurred. Mm -hmm. um, we don't ever hear about Caligastia that much that I know of. No. The Bible doesn't really speak about Caligastia. Uh, the Bible does mention Lucifer and certainly mentions Satan, mm -hmm. uh, but in different ways. Can you give some illustrations as to how you would uh, do some corresponding uh, between well, the, the Bible the and your The most significant thing about comparing the biblical Satan to the Urantia Satan, or Lucifer, as mm -hmm. it were. And we're really talking about Lucifer, because he was the one who okay. fomented the rebellion. And, and if we wanted to call somebody the devil, that would be who we most accurately would pin the title on. So Satan, And he was, in fact, a fallen angel. And it was, he was right. a created spiritual being who went astray after many, many eons of, of brilliant service. Well, what was, his, what was his sin? I mean, what was it that well, Lucifer did that... the irony of that is that if you read the Lucifer Manifesto in the Urantia book, where he is making his case, it sounds an awful lot like 
you know, what a lot of people believe right here and now in this country. And that is that the sanctity of the individual takes precedence over the welfare of the brotherhood <laughs> in the sense that I, as an individual, have a right to do what I please. For example, let's take the issue of uh, pornography. Now, you'd be hard-pressed... free speech to, issue, okay, yeah, that's you where go, we are. You go right out there and you'd be hard-pressed to find an individual who will say to you, yeah, I think pornography is a good thing, we ought to have more of it, it's really good for our society. Hardly anybody would agree with that. Right. But yet we have it all over the place because in our culture we have decided that the right of the individual to produce, manufacture, distribute pornography is a higher right than the right of our society to protect ourselves from its ill effects. Mm -hmm. And that is, the, in effect, the Lucifer point of view. And his now, this is very interesting. So this is in the Lucifer Manifesto, which is actually yeah, in And Lucifer book. basically, first of all, he claimed that God didn't exist. He had never seen God, never met God. Now, and, this, is a, this is a high being. Right saying that God doesn't right. exist. He claimed that God was made up by the ancients of days. Now, the ancients of days are the triumvirate that rule over the super universe of Orvington, which we are a part of. In other words, there are many local universes and a super universe mm -hmm. and subdivisions in between. But up at the highest level of the super universe, which there's seven super universes, which all are around the central universe of Havona, at which the center of is the Isle of Paradise, which, of course, is where God lives. And so the, uh, this is not wholly inconsistent with the biblical concept of heaven, but it's just much more complex and right. much larger. And much more specific. And much focused. more specific yeah. and explained in great detail. And so anyway, Lucifer said, well, the ancients of days up at the super universe level, who he knew existed because, you know, he had contact okay. with them. He worked for them, basically. They were his superiors after, you know, Michael was his immediate superior. And he knew that Michael was for real because that was his father. You know, Michael created Lucifer. He was a, a created being, an angel, so to speak. Hmm. And uh, so he claimed that there was no God, and the ancients of days just put, created that, made up that story to prop up their own power, their own authority. So well, when they, they wanted to have something to say, well, they when wanted you say, to be how able did to, you come up with that? They said, well, we didn't come yeah, up with it. God yeah, told come us. from upstairs. In right. other words, the, the ancients of days would say, well, this is the way it's got to be because this is the way God wants it. Right. And so Lucifer says, hey, I'm not buying that. There is no God. You guys you just want it your way. And I'm out here in Satania. And I don't need anybody telling me what to do from upstairs. So I mean, this is this is like this is perfect. Very familiar. Okay, sure, it's a familiar. And, this is like uh, the age old, you know. Yeah, uh, somebody asked me once, well, isn't this kind of funny that this story and this book and all that seems to mirror the way things are here on this planet? Right. And I said, well, no. Uh, what it means is that we mirror the way things are out there. Right. Well, as above is so below. Yeah. And so, at any rate, um, <clears throat> Lucifer claimed that God didn't exist and that it was all a big hoax. And that there was no, they had no authority to tell him what to do out here in his system. And so what he did, he basically seceded from the union. He's trying to do what Lithuania is trying to do now. He's trying mm -hmm. to unplug from, from the uh, guys upstairs. Okay. And so he sent Satan around to the various planets in his system to try to sell his bill of goods to them. Well, Satan approached the various planetary princes, in other words, the head guy on the various planets. Right. Of which, which we are Urantia, one yeah, of the we're, planets. Yeah, we're uh, uh, in the 600s in terms of the, the number where we fit into the thousand planets that are in uh, 
system. Is there anything to do, do with this number 666? Is this I, I, have, I have surmised that that might be a distortion of the fact that our planetary number is 606. In other words, this is the 606th planet in the system of okay. Satania. And it would be very easy over a few hundred thousand years for that to be misconstrued as 666. Okay. But that's speculation. It has right. nothing to do with what's in the Urantia And um, But at any rate, Lucifer, I mean, Satan went to the planets in Lucifer's behalf, and including ours, talked to Caligastia, who was our planetary prince at that time, and said, listen, uh, he told him basically what Lucifer's point of view was and told him that if he would swear allegiance to Lucifer, buy into his program, right. then he could be the god of Urantia, meaning that, that he could set himself up as the sovereign, the end of the line, the, the god of his planet, and he could teach the people, the individuals on his planet to worship him, and that he would be absolutely in charge, and he wouldn't have to, to pass any of the credit or any of the uh, worship upstairs on his planet he's in charge just as long as he's there when lucifer needs him for something on mm -hmm. the system level and so there were a relative few i think maybe 29 or so planets out of a thousand uh that went along with this whose planetary prince bought into the rebellion so and there's so, probably 29 other books like this uh there might <laughs> tell the there might, story there might be you know the uh the interesting thing is that um the reason that this book was sent to us, presumably, was to bring us out of the quarantine, basically, that we've been right. in. Right. No, so that, that's what we should get to right away. What happened then? Okay, we bought into it. How does God... Did, did God find out about this, or did this well, just... Well, you've got to remember that God is a very busy guy. Yeah. And, you know, our traditional religious thinking makes leads us to believe that, that this is the only place he's got mm -hmm. to keep track of. And then he sits up there on his watching his TV or something just to keep track of what's happening down here every day. Right. But the fact of the matter is, his kingdom is much, much more vast than that. And they're just like in the case of the United States, the president of the United States doesn't doesn't know what's happening uh, here Today, in Santa here. Barbara right. right now. You know, he has the big picture, but he's got senators and representatives and governors mm -hmm. and mayors and all kinds of people between him and us as we sit here. So if something happens that's really significant, he'll get the word. But as far as the day-to-day right. -day activities and so forth, uh, you know, it's impossible for him to know what's going on in every community and every city right. in the country. And it's pretty much the same with God. He has a tremendous kingdom, and he's got a lot of people working for him. So did this go to him. Michael then? Did my, was the Michael who, who well, was the one who said Lucifer? Well, this, gone too that far. took place a long, <laughs> much later because once the rebellion started, what happened is the planet began to polarize. And you had one group over here that was pleading the case of God and uh, the ah. and one group over here led by Caligastia and his subordinates. Okay, that, so we have division on the planet itself now. Right. In other words, there was a great debate that went on for seven years. Well, that's not that long. Back and forth. In Earth time, it was a long time. It'd be just like now. It'd be like us having a seven-year-long presidential campaign. Okay. And uh, So now the people, the people are actually involved. The people are involved in the sense that they are being asked to make a choice now themselves. Are you going to pay allegiance to Lucifer and buy into the new program? 
or are you going to stick with the old program and continue to have faith in God and, and to believe in God? All right. And so after um, after this went on for seven years, pretty much every everybody had taken a stand. Okay. And there weren't a lot of people on the planet at this time, of course. So you know, it's not anywhere near the size that it is now. At any rate, one of the first things that happened once this rebellion broke out was we were cut off from the rest of the universe, communications-wise. Now, what about the people that didn't want to go with it? They're cut off, too. Well, yeah, the entire planet was cut off in terms of communication with the rest of the universe. All right. And for obvious reasons. What's the first thing uh, that any uh, um, insurgent group does whenever they take over a government? You know, they seize the means of communication, you know, and the media and so, so forth. So did, did the insurgents, which is, you know, Lucifer and Caligasi, they cut off... No, they were cut. We were cut off from upstairs. In other words, the best way to prevent this rebellion from, from spreading to other right. planets was to, to, to cut it. them off where like they the can't spread the this word. Okay. Right. And so what, that's exactly what happened. And were it not for that, you and I would take for granted uh, this stuff about system government and the super universe because we could turn on the six o'clock news and find out what's going on at Salvington, which is the the system headquarters, or or uh, you know any other place in the universe because we would have interplanetary communications right. so the reason that we on on Urantia or let's call it earth for those of people who are having trouble believing this the reason that we on earth right now question the existence of extraterrestrials have never met extraterrestrials or know nothing about the rest of the universe is specifically because we've been quarantined. Right. Not because it doesn't exist, or not because the rest of the universe isn't interested in us. We are actually not allowed in. Right. <laughs> okay. And, you know, the interesting thing, well, sometimes people will say, well, um, it's been 350,000 years, why don't they cut us some slack? Well, you got to remember that, that the uh, 350,000 years in the framework of eternity is just a couple of minutes and so as far as the as the uh, heavenly beings uh, the higher ups are concerned you know this thing just happened last week and uh, it's still in the process of adjudication now the fact that they have told us the story you know vis-a-vis -vis the Urantia book is an indication that they're ready to start you know telling us about this or they're ready to start bringing us back into the system and if you'll notice on our planet right now, all over the planet, with with a few exceptions and notable exceptions, um, the the trend is toward peace. Right, it's and toward the, global brotherhood. And right, brotherhood. And uh, so the planet is getting nearer the point uh, where it should be. See, the Lucifer Rebellion set us back eons in terms of our spiritual development because it introduced into our planet a erroneous, uh, evil, if you will alternative to God's point of view, to God's will. And most planets don't have that. You know, all you hear is the good stuff, and people are, are raised without this competing philosophy, which has resulted in, in the, uh, the crime and, and the pestilence and the wars and all the stuff that we have on this planet, which are not characteristic of a normal planet. Okay, we've got Lucifer, Satan, Caligastia, We've got them in uh, uh, a little bit of understanding here as to what is going on. Uh, the Bible refers to the three of them, basically, as Satan. So the Bible is, in a sense, referring to them as a concept. 
And let's go over the concept again. The concept being nothing more than the idea of, of self... Of, of self... Um, selfishness. Selfishness, self-rule. Uh, you know, the idea that the individual is... You more know, important than the... Is more important than than the brotherhood. Hmm. You know, that, that the individual's rights supersede those of uh, the brotherhood. Now, when we watch science fiction movies, <laughs> whenever we see this concept of the uh, of the brotherhood, it's supposedly scary, namely that everyone does the same thing and everyone lives in harmony and peace, and that is supposedly scary to us because the individual doesn't have the right to think for himself. Is that really the way it is? Or? No, not at all. It's easy to see how you can get that impression, but the um, mankind, humankind, always has the option to choose to choose good or evil, to choose right or wrong, or to choose the will of God, or to reject the will of God. That's one of that's why they call us will creatures, because we have free will. And you're always able to make that choice. And the fact of the matter is that the idea of being concerned about the welfare of your fellow man, and by the way, I'm not a sexist, I'm using these uh, biblical uh, traditional terms uh, to include both men and women and uh, but the idea that that the brotherhood of man is an essential part of our culture that should be an essential part of our culture is based on the simple concept that if people think of each other as brothers and sisters and regard each other that way, then they tend to get along a lot better, hmm. as opposed to thinking only of their their own needs, their own self, and what's good for me, never mind what it does to you. And uh, this idea, this selfishness, or the self-orientation, is what precipitates, you know, the major portion of the crime and and the uh, hostilities and the wars on the planet. People are concerned about their interests to the exclusion of other people's interests. And this is inconsistent with the teachings of Jesus Christ, and it's inconsistent with basic philosophy, with basic logic. And so the a kingdom where you don't have a strong negative influence is not necessarily boring. It's just less troublesome. And uh, on a kingdom or in a planet, for example, where you haven't had a rebellion, where you don't have the strong influence of the dark side, if I can use a Star Wars you know, terminology, w without the strong influence of the dark side, it doesn't mean that there is a complete absence of evil or wrongdoing. It just means that it's a much more rare thing. Hmm. And uh, on our planet, it's almost a, seems like a 50-50 thing where about half the planet are... are uh, people that that we would not choose to uh to be close to or choose to to be around and the other half are good people and so it's a much more complex issue than just everybody being the same jesus himself uh said that uniformity is not what we're looking for we're looking for spiritual unity meaning unity of purpose and unity of goal, but the diversity of cultures and individuals and tastes and so forth is what makes it all interesting. All right. Michael incarnates as Jesus the Christ. Well, Jesus, not Jesus the Christ, and that terminology was added all much, right. much later. Jesus of Nazareth. Mm-hmm. Have the fundamentalists oversimplified what Jesus' teachings were about? Because all I ever hear from them is, 
believe in Jesus as the Savior, and everything is all right. I, I, I think that's fairly accurate. Maybe well, we can... to be more accurate, the, the basis of fundamental Christian religion is original sin and atonement. All right. Meaning that, that man is condemned from the get-go on the basis of the original sin of Adam and Eve, mm -hmm. meaning that God is a very vindictive person or something, so that because of the sins of some people that lived thousands of years ago, he's going to condemn their progeny for thousands of years to come, and which is very hard for me to swallow. But anyway, the, the idea of original sin is what puts us in jeopardy to start with. And then the atonement is the concept that Jesus... That God, you know, got to the point where, well, I'm really tired of condemning my children, and so I better send my only son down here to the planet so they can kill him, and thereby I'll have a means to forgive them. And So some type of a, of a sacrifice. Yeah, a sacrificial concept. All right. And that Jesus was sent here for the express purpose of, of being crucified and would thereby provide atonement for the sins of people who hadn't been born yet. All right, what was the original sin anyway? <clears throat> well, Does the, anyone sin of, know? the sin of, uh, they're referring to the sin of Adam and Eve. And uh, if you want to, I don't want the ladies to come down on me here, but if you go back to the very essence, it's when Eve took the bite out of the apple, which, by the way, is another mythological uh, description of an event that took place but it didn't involve an apple and it didn't involve a snake it was a simple it didn't even involve a woman it did in fact <laughs> it did involve a woman and it did involve a man as well right. and adam that's another whole story the adam and eve story they did exist mm -hmm. and uh, as well, some people we've got time let's talk well, about adam and eve okay well we'll digress to adam and eve a little bit now but this is according to urantia you're according to urantia adam and eve were not the first people on this planet by a long shot okay and um there's a clue to that in the Bible, by the way. You know, in Genesis it talks about, you know, Adam and Eve had their two sons first, Cain and Abel. And then uh, Cain slew Abel. Okay, so we're down to and one then, man. And then a Cain, then, according to the scriptures, left. He went off to the land of Nod and took himself a wife. Now, where did she come from? Okay, now that's, that's a tough so situation. that's a little clue. That's a clue. Also, wasn't Cain marked? Well, that wasn't he a marked man at that point? Not really. You know, the actually the the land of Nod was the home of the Nodites, and the Nodites were the ones who broke off back during the Lucifer Rebellion. If you recall, there was a um, a great debate going on after the Lucifer Rebellion, and the group that chose to reject God and to go along with the um, Lucifer point of view, were led by a man by the name of Nod. And the people, his followers, and later his descendants became known as the Nodites. So they and were the people that, they that went along with... They went along with the Lucifer Rebellion. They went along with Caligastia, in other words. So that's where Cain went. Right. Cain went off to the land of Nod. In other words, the descendants of Nod, who were the the guys who sided with Caligastia in the Lucifer Rebellion. As now, what do, the, what do the fundamentalists say about this? I mean, here's, well, the, here's know, the land of Nod. They usually will say, uh, they have a lot of different ways of explaining some of these 
things in the scriptures that, that don't add up, and they usually amount to just ignoring the problem. Okay. And uh, all right, the, so I didn't mean to say that, but why don't we continue know, with and uh, see the 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 one thing I would like to say while we're talking about fundamentalist, uh, almost as though it's a, a dirty word. Okay. Now I yeah I want to apologize. I'm not in any way taking issue with fundamental doctrines. The the thing I'd like to say though is that we always hear the one-sided issue. We always hear you either believe in the Bible or you are going to hell. You either accept this doctrine or you're going to hell. And I find that hard to swallow and I know a lot of other people do and that's why we were we're talking about that issue and the Urantia book is just something some way to to look at that. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to mention to the fundamentalists, to my fundamentalist brothers and sisters, that the important thing to remember is that we serve the same master. And I've had uh, ongoing discussions and I've had some pretty intense debates with persons of the fundamentalist belief. And um, the fact of the matter is that we serve the same master, we serve the same God. I just claim to have some updated information and you know the the fundamentalist doctrines are based almost entirely the ones that give us the most trouble anyway are based almost entirely on the theology of the apostle paul the idea of original sin and atonement are the work of the apostle paul jesus never taught that you know if you look in the new testament you won't find any place where jesus talked about mankind being condemned because of the sins of adam and eve and you won't find any place where he said that my purpose was that god sent me here so that you could crucify me and i will be the sacrifice that, that saves you from your sins he never taught that that's why if you recall that's why nathaniel split from the apostles because he wanted to teach what jesus taught he wanted to teach what Jesus taught them, what Jesus preached in his day. And the apostles wanted to teach about Jesus, the sensational aspects of it. Now, a lot of people don't even realize that the apostle Paul was not one of the twelve. He was a second-generation Christian who didn't know Jesus. You know, other than the brief encounter on the road to Damascus, uh, the Apostle Paul never heard Jesus preach. He never traveled with Why him. Why do we even call him an apostle then? Well, he was dubbed an apostle much later on the basis of his missionary work and uh, on the basis of his writings. See, a, a great many of the books in the New Testament are essentially letters that Paul wrote to the various churches that he established on his missionary tours who insisted that he, that he provide them with some written explanations to specific questions that they were... So he was a minister out doing a he was sermon a by letter, and this becomes part of the Bible. Exactly. And then this becomes and, the Word of God. And I'm going to explain to you why Paul developed the doctrine of original sin and sacrifice. A lot of people say, well, why would somebody make up a story like that? And I wouldn't go so far as to say that Paul made it up. I, I believe that he believed it to be true, but it was his own deductions that made him arrive at that conclusion. Because here's, here's the situation. Jesus, the leader of the, this new religion, and by the way, it wasn't Christianity because the, the word wasn't coined until long after Jesus was dead. That's what the religion about Jesus is known as Christianity. Mm -hmm. not the religion of Jesus, the gospel of the kingdom, as it were. And so Paul was, were it not for Paul, Christianity or the, this religion about Jesus would have probably died out because he was, he was largely responsible hmm. for, 
for uh, keeping it alive. And he was a great man, you know, a great religious teacher. But he had a, a twofold problem. First of all, the crucifixion was a terrible public relations disaster for the early Christian movement. Suppose, for example, that, that you were walking around in a park and, and some guy comes up to you and says, say, I'd like for you to, to join our group here and become a part of this new religion. And you say, and he'll say, well, uh, who's in charge of this new religion or who's the, who's the master? And he said, well, his name is Jesus. And he said, oh, you mean that guy that they just crucified up here on Golgotha a few weeks ago? You know, tried him, the Sanhedrin, our, our religious leaders tried him and convicted him and sentenced him to death. And now you want me to join his club? Right. Uh, no thanks. And so Paul was um, confronted with the public relations problem in the sense that he had to find an explanation for the crucifixion. How is it that some Roman soldiers at the behest of the Sanhedrin can crucify the Son of God? You know, how, why, would, why would God let it happen? Why would Jesus let it happen? I mean, how can this be? Because it just didn't fit into anybody's concept of what the Messiah was going to be about. And the second problem he had was the idea that the Jewish people, and Jesus, of course, was a Jew, and, and the great majority of the early Christians were Jews. And the Messiah concept that they had been raised on for, for generations was, in their mind, it was a, a temporal ruler, a political ruler, uh, somebody that was going to come along and reestablish the throne of David mm. and, and put the Hebrew nation back on top again. After So that's what they were looking for. They were looking for someone that was going to put them back on top in the physical, temporal sense. And Jesus, of course, was a spiritual leader. He had no political ambitions, no military ambitions. He was going to teach them about the kingdom of heaven, which is within you, as he said many times. And so the Jewish people weren't really looking for that kind of a kingdom. You know, they wanted out of bondage. They wanted to be back in charge of their own lives again. And so they weren't too enthusiastic about this religion that involves... Uh, just a spiritual, philosophical thing. And so in order to sell Christianity to a Jewish nation, to a Jewish people, uh, it had to be tailored to, first of all, their long-standing tradition of sacrifice. Uh, the Hebrews had been sacrificing animals and calves and, and all kinds of uh, innocent animals to what they perceived to be a wrathful God for generations and generations. And, uh, you know, the idea was that if you killed this animal on the altar, that that somehow appeased God, you know, that he was into that. And they were afraid not to do that. And so Paul used the crucifixion as the ultimate sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Finality, and now right. we no longer have to do this anymore. And it also explained why Jesus was killed in the first place to their satisfaction, because he was supposed to be. He was sent here for that purpose. Mm. And so at that time, it was a very tidy and a very practical explanation for Jesus' reason for being here and why he was crucified and what it all means to us. But again, it was entirely the creation of the Apostle Paul. And if Now, what about the resurrection? Well, the resurrection is unrelated to that issue. In the, I mean, Jesus could not resurrect himself if he hadn't 
Well, Jesus, been crucified. Jesus was resurrected. Well, no, I'm, I'm not saying that, 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 that Paul made all this up. No, he But Paul, I'm just saying. <laughs> Paul is the one who, who came up with the idea, the doctrine of original sin and atonement. So he came up with. with As it uh, relates the, to Christianity. We could call it the hole in the script. Yeah, what he did basically was provide some an explanation for a lot of people that needed an explanation, right. and one that he believed to be true, and because he was you know raised in the same environment, you know, and it all made sense to him at the time, I'm sure, and um, so the idea that salvation is based upon buying in to this version of what happened and why it happened is what Christianity is now. Okay. In other words, you have to accept this story as being the true story if you want to go to heaven. But that's not what Jesus taught. All right. Now, when did the... Okay, King James put this thing together. Now, the King James Version of the Bible was printed in 1611. And to give you some, to give you some background on that, uh, the King James Version of the Bible was based mostly on the Greek text that was edited by a fellow by the name of Beza or Beza in 1589, which in turn closely followed the earlier text of Erasmus, which who lived, uh, this happened around 1516 to 1535. And Erasmus in turn based his work on eight Greek manuscripts, the earliest of which was a 10th century document. And by the way, this is biblical uh, okay. uh, scholarly work. This has nothing to do with this information didn't come from the arrangement book. It right, comes this is, from the biblical okay. studies. Now, it's interesting to note that Beza had two very valuable 5th and 6th century manuscripts available when he prepared his text, but he chose not to use them extensively because they differed significantly from the previously published text of Erasmus, which, remember, dated back to about the 10th century. All right, so what we have happening right already is we've got editing going on. Right. There's been some information editing, that has been excluded. He has excluded, he has chosen not to use the earlier manuscripts which he had in his possession, 5th and 6th century documents, because they didn't match up perfectly with the previously published text of Erasmus, which was based on a on 10th century documents, the oldest thing they had at the time. The reason he didn't use it is because back in those days, if you took issue with the scriptures, you got killed for it. You know, for example, uh, William Tyndale was executed just for having the audacity to translate the scriptures into English so the common man could read them. And and they, they uh, he was executed. Now, when was this? This was uh, Tyndale. Let me see. I'm not sure. I think that would have been in uh, about the 17th century, or the uh, 16th, 17th century. I'm not sure exactly. That's not that long ago. That's why I Oh, no. Asked. No, in fairly recent times. Was this one of those? Uh, uh, it was. I mean, it was much before that. Excuse me, I've got myself confused right. here. Uh, the King James version of the Bible, anyway, is is based, therefore, on approximately 10th century manuscripts. Now, since then, since King James was published, we have discovered manuscripts that date all the way back to about the third century. And but we've got no place to put them. Now. And if you compare the scriptures in these third century documents which came from the uh, you know the Dead Sea Scrolls and so forth uh, there are a lot of differences between those documents and the uh, 10th century documents which King James is based on and the comparison of those two we're not talking about a lot of serious fundamental differences but just a lot of differences in terms of 
you know, matters of historical fact, uh, matters of uh, quoting and so forth, various individuals. And the most important thing about it is it proves that the scriptures were, in fact, altered, you know, either purposely or inadvertently over a period of time. And it makes perfectly good sense uh, whenever you consider the fact that this stuff happened 2,000 years ago. And in the interim, they have the scriptures have been translated and edited and rewritten, you know, dozens of times. And another important thing to to bring to attention is the fact that the New Testament, as we know it today, wasn't assembled in its present form, you know, as a group of books which we now call the New Testament, until uh, about the fourth century. And so, in other words, it, the Bible didn't drop out of heaven bound in leather. You know, in its mm-hmm. current form, it's an anthology of writings of religious writings that were created over a period of hundreds and even thousands of years, if you include the New Testament. I mean, the Old Testament, and by a lot of different authors. And and so, by all all, uh, uh, or I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but it should be an evolving book. It's, it just hasn't, it's stagnated for a while. That's well, what where we are right is, now. What has happened is, and this is where the fundamentalism comes into play, is that certain individuals have chosen to base uh, their beliefs on some documents and various books and letters that were written over a broad spectrum of time and by a, a, a wide you know group of you know a diverse group of individuals and to base their entire belief and their faith on these writings which have been passed down through generation after generation rather than the spirit of truth that Jesus foretold and that God provided at mm-hmm. Pentecost for all mankind and so as a, as a result they have more or less closed their mind to the even the possibility of a new revelation, regardless of what form it comes in. And one of the problems is that in in religious circles, the authority of the information is always comes before uh, the evaluation of the content. You know, one of the main questions I get about the Arantia book from anybody that I talk to for more than 30 seconds about it is, who wrote it? Where did it come from? And if you're dealing with a religious scholar, the very first thing they want to know is by what authority has this information, you know, right. been uh, I Meanwhile, printed. we're discovering now by what authority has the Bible been and And so the bottom line is that, that you can, we, there's no way to prove today, no way whatsoever to prove who wrote anything in the Bible and uh, when it was written or where it was written. There's just no way of knowing that. So we have two things it's taken here. taken on faith, just right. like you do with the Urantia book. You have exactly. To take it on we're faith. Ta- we have a belief system here that the Bible is a particular document, and as long as we believe that that's the way it is, it stays like that. It's stagnant. It is uh, stagnant, not meaning negative, but just it's it stayed. It's frozen in, in time. Okay, frozen in time is a better way of saying it. Uh, and yet here we have more information. Uh, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have information that's been found from the third century. Which, AD. by the way, have been published in the form of, like, for example, the New International Version of the Bible uh, contains uh, is based, in to some degree, on the earlier manuscripts. But in no way have we still, at this point, discovered as much as information as we find in the Urantia book. Is that correct? Oh, there's, you know, so the Urantia book has 777 pages devoted 
just to the life and teachings of Jesus in great detail. I'm talking about his youth. For example, Jesus had seven brothers and sisters. All right, let's talk. Which about we never that. heard about. Great. You know? Matter of fact, Jesus had brothers and sisters, so he mm -hmm. was in a family. Tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about him. Well, Jesus had a an upbringing and a family life that was very much like anyone else's in the period. And um, except, so he wasn't the only son of Joseph and Mary. Oh no. He was the oldest, but by no means the only one. So he was the only one at one point. Yeah. Okay. At one point. And, um, and Jesus' father, Joseph, was killed in a construction accident when he was 14 years old, and he had to more or less assume the uh, role of the head of the family. And so this had an impact on his upbringing. But before we get too much into that, I want to, to back up just a little bit. And we, a while ago, we talked about what isn't the key to salvation in the sense that, that the idea that that believing in original sin and atonement, uh, I suggested that that is not uh, the the key to everlasting life or to salvation, which of course will bring down the ire of, of many people, many Christians who believe that it is. But I would like to offer in its place what Jesus taught as being the the key to salvation, and because uh, in other words, I don't want to take something away without putting something in its place. And Jesus, in one of his many discussions with uh, his disciples and his apostles and his uh, students, the people that he preached to and taught to, there's many, many of them in the Urantia book, and many of them are quoted uh, verbatim, presumably. And so there's a lot of teaching there, a lot of information. But the best capsulized, uh, the essence of it came whenever he was once one time asked this question. And uh, this is what he said. Now, this is a quote from part four of the Urantia book, The Life and Teachings of Jesus. He said, Salvation is the free gift of God, but those who are born of the Spirit will immediately begin to show forth the fruits of the Spirit in loving service to their fellow creatures. And the fruits of the divine Spirit, which are yielded in the lives of Spirit-born and God-knowing mortals, are undying hope, loving service, confiding trust, sincere fairness, unselfish devotion, merciful ministry, forgiving tolerance, courageous loyalty, enlightened honesty, unfailing goodness, and enduring peace. Now, to me, it's it sounds much... like vows. It sounds like the vows you would take if you were to become a monk or a... Or well, no, not really. They're just basic, uh, you know goodness right you know and the the idea is that now in my view living up to those mandates is much tougher than just believing in original sin and atonement but on the other hand it's much more valid philosophically in the sense that it requires you to to do something you know to be something and to demonstrate something rather than just buy into a particular explanation of hmm. things and so those fruits of the Spirit, as Jesus referred to them, is what they expect to see in someone who is Spirit-born and God-knowing. And if you are Spirit-born... They born, meaning? The, the celestials. Okay. The heavenly hosts. So this is what they expect? This is what they expect of people that are, in fact... Let's, let's call it saved, a term that the fundamentals okay. are familiar. If you, if you want to call yourself saved, then I should be able to look at you and see those qualities. 
and uh, they should be a, a part of your lifestyle. So we're not talking about lip service here. We're no, not we're saying... not talking about lip service. We're talking about living the religion. And the religion of Jesus was a living religion. It wasn't something that you can crystallize and write down a book or, or incorporate into a, a statue. You know, it was something that it was a day-to-day -day practical approach to living. And that's what Jesus taught. He taught us how to live one day at a time, how to relate to our fellow man, and the kind of character traits that a person will exhibit if they are true followers of Jesus. Now, to me, that's a much more important message than the message that eventually became the foundation of Christianity, the idea that Jesus died for our sins, believe it or perish. Right. And uh, that can get you off the hook too easy. Right. Yeah. So in other words, you can do anything you want as long as every night before you go to bed, you ask Jesus to forgive you for what you just did. And as long as you <laughs> believe the story, you know. Right. And uh, it's not really that simple. No. And most Christians wouldn't agree with that statement, but because they'll say that if you are saved, then you're going to want to do to do right and to follow the teaching of Jesus. And that's true. That's what Jesus said. If you're spirit born and God knowing, this is what, this is what we expect to see in you. So the question is, <clears throat> How does one become spirit-born? How does one get the Pentecostal experience? Well, I mean, isn't that the really problems, the essential the essential question here? Then? One of the problems is in re in answering that question. One of the things that gives people, particularly of an intellectual persuasion, a hard time <clears throat> is that they have been led to believe that that this has to be an emotional experience. <clears throat> that it has to be a a rapture or some kind of a of a big event and it all of a sudden comes over you and your life has changed. Well, I'm not questioning the validity of that kind of experience, but that is not really <clears throat> the all, you know, the the only way that it happens to people. Now, I had a problem with this because I uh, always was a, a questioner, you know, I always had a why behind every time somebody would tell me something, I'd want to know why. And one of the problems I had with fundamental uh, Christian doctrine was that there was just too many whys that couldn't be answered reasonably. Just that's the way it is. Take mm -hmm. it or leave it. Buy into it or else, you know. And I always had a problem with that. And there were a lot of explanations that I couldn't, um, <clears throat> that no one had for me that I needed to have. And this came to a head one day many years ago. Um, this is also, I'm an ex-policeman back in my younger days I was a Dallas police officer and one of the things I had to do to get that job was to take a lie detector test and uh, so I'm strapped into this machine and and they're asking me a lot of questions personal questions to find out if I was pure enough to be a policeman in those days you had to be you know pure as a driven snow to be a policeman at least in Dallas Texas you did and um, I was asked a question in the course of this polygraph examination did I believe in God? Now here I am, the preacher's son, right? And I just very quickly said yes. Just you know, who are they talking about? You know, you're talking to the preacher's son here. And I said yes, and the machine said I was lying. And that weirded me out, you know. And it really bugged me, you know, that this machine because told, your body said you had well, questions. <laughs> basically, what it amounted to, <clears throat> excuse me, I came to the conclusion after thinking about this quite a while that that I wanted to believe in God, but I just didn't really have any hard evidence or anything to sell me on it other than the fact that I wanted it to be true and that I wanted to believe it. And what the Urantia book did for me, it was it gave me 
the evidence that I needed. The solid, logical, comprehensive explanation of every question I ever had that nobody else would answer for me. Hmm. And it's so everything of, you want to know about God, but were afraid to ask or didn't know the question or, or couldn't get an answer from. You know? <laughs> right. And it was full of ahas. And you'd be reading along, and you you'd come across something, and you say, "Aha! I knew that. I mean, I knew that inside, hmm. but I just, you know, never saw it put into print, or I've never seen it explained to me before." And I kept coming across these things that, that my gut feeling, my spirit of truth, as it were told me that hey you're on to it now now you're getting the straight dope or you're getting the skinny on this and it got to be pretty exciting because you'd read on and read on and i kept waiting to come to something that would be the the key the clue that this is a hoax that this is oh you know, aha this can't be true i know now that this is a big hoax well i just never came across that i came across a lot of things that were extremely far-fetched and it seemed so uh, contrived or arbitrary at the time. But by the time I had read through the whole book and really developed an understanding of the big picture, it all fits into place beautifully to the extent that, that the big picture concept of the Arantia book is what it's really all about, that it shows you a big picture that just blows your mind. Mm. And the most important thing I can say about that is that once you've read the Urantia book extensively and are familiar with its contents, you cease to be concerned about the origin of it because it stands on its own philosophically. And you realize that, hey, I don't care if this thing was written by a stockbroker in Chicago or God himself, this is good stuff. It rings true. It rings true. <laughs> and if everybody listened to what's here and pattern their lives accordingly, this would be a really great place to be. This planet would be in fine shape. And so its validity, it's self-authenticating. It's philosophically self-validating, you know, once you've read through it. And there are a lot of things in there now that that are that would be very controversial and that would seem uh very inconsistent with with our cultural uh, upbringing, with our current value systems, if taken out of context and if if looked at outside of the context of the whole. But in toto, you know, it, the comprehensive nature of it and the expansive nature of the information is just you know enough to keep you busy for a lifetime. It is a lifetime study. Mm. You can't pick up the Arantia book and a week later say, okay, I got this all figured out. All right. Uh, Jesus was not the only son of Mary and Joseph. <laughs> That's right. And you know, speaking of his brothers and sisters, one of the most interesting anecdotes is about Jude. Jesus is, I believe, his youngest brother. Uh, name was Jude, and Jude was a hothead. He was a kind of a nationalist type. Uh, he was one of the militant type Jews of his period, and that he uh, was very rebellious. Uh, relative to the Roman soldiers, the Roman centurions, the Roman rulers that they had, uh, that they were subjected to at that point. And Jude uh, had a, a tendency to get into trouble and to run his mouth off, basically. And there's a very interesting story in there about a, a time when Jesus had to go to the um, slammer and uh, try to talk Jude out of jail and to try to placate the uh, the Romans to get him to turn him loose because he had insulted uh, a Roman soldier. And the, the perhaps the most moving thing about 
part four of the Urantia book is the the human humanness of Jesus that is brought out, you know, the human side of him. You know, the the Bible focuses on the divine side of Jesus, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which is interesting, but not very useful, you know, to you and me who are down here in the trenches. And we need to know how to deal with these day-to-day problems that we have, these day-to-day family crises, and these day-to-day problems within personal, uh, interpersonal relationships. And um, the life and teachings of Jesus in the Urantia book uh, goes into great detail about his entire life and all of his relationships and all of his teachings. And there's scarcely anything that you could confront in your daily life, any kind of a crisis or decision-making process that that he he didn't face his personal self and that he didn't have to deal with. And it's very helpful to go in there and see what Jesus did when he was in this kind of situation or what Jesus would have to say about that because it's always very reassuring. It's very comforting. And it's important that, you know, Jesus is called the way shower. And if he's going to be the way shower, we need to know, you know, how he did it, you know, what, mm-hmm. what his technique was, what his beliefs were. So how did he get Jude out? <laughs> And uh, oh, he just talked him out of it. You know, I won't go into a lot of detail about the specific answers. And this is actually in the Urantia book. It's in the Urantia book, of course. And, uh, we have a detailed uh, life of Jesus starting right out with the birth. The birth isn't even the way that... Uh, no, uh, I was hoping you wouldn't touch on that. <laughs> now the Catholics are going to be after me. Why not? Well, because according to the Urantia let's book... Not, let's not only have fundamentalists calling today, let's have the Catholics, let's have the Jews call. <laughs> okay, the... Um, um, according to the Urantia book, Jesus, the the man Jesus, the the physical uh, incarnation of Michael of Nebadon, a son of God, was born into this world through the same process that all of us were. So carnal. So the right. So the the virgin birth uh, didn't happen, according to these teachings, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the, uh, if you think about it, there was really no need for that in the first place, other than the fact that there were some people many, many years ago, again, long after the death of Jesus, who decided that it just couldn't possibly be that the Son of God could have come into the earth as a result of an act of sex because of their own personal hang-ups about the sex act at that time. And uh, so that, that point of view was cultivated to satisfy their own needs regarding uh, and this wasn't the first story incidentally no, that there had matter, been someone born of uh, of a virgin oh this is uh this has brought up uh the idea of in the scriptures that mary was a virgin uh the earlier uh transcripts don't use the term virgin they just say uh, a maiden you know mm-hmm. which is a uh, means something different you know in that terminology but According to um, the story, as it's related in the Urantia book, uh, Jesus, Joseph, and Mary were already married when Jesus was born, and uh, and they were indeed having sex like most young married Jewish couples, and like most Jewish couples, they had a lot of children. And that was one of the main mandates of the mm-hmm. Hebrew people was to have as many kids as possible because someday we're coming back. Right, know? and uh, so they had their seven or eight children, and. Um, the fact that Mary wasn't a virgin uh, is really it doesn't, a, is no, no it doesn't lessen right. It doesn't lessen it, the importance of Jesus. It doesn't change Jesus. a thing other than the fact that you know it's going to it, it 
it's at odds with right. with the uh, the Christian. Right, and we can't doctor. call her the Blessed Virgin if she wasn't a virgin. Not that that doesn't make her important. She's not any less blessed. We just can't call yeah. her the Blessed Virgin now. And uh, well, a lot of people can, but at any rate, you know, the, as I said, that's a touchy subject. And um, all I can say is that uh, if if you want to believe that Mary was a virgin, if it makes you feel better mm-hmm. about who Jesus was, then, you know, go ahead on. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus is, is no less important and his message is no less valid because of the fact that, that he was conceived, uh, his physical body was conceived in the same manner as uh, all other men's physical bodies. All right, so we've got a complete history of Jesus' childhood. We've got him one, mm-hmm. two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, all these years that are completely... Uh, left out completely left out why well of course i guess one of the reasons they were left out is because first of all the apostle paul never didn't met him or didn't know yeah well uh, peter was the one who uh wrote the first well actually it was the first gospel was written under his tutelage mm-hmm. by john mark and uh, he was familiar somewhat with jesus family and you know he knew something about it but it was. And remember, though, this was 40 years after he was dead, sure. and none of the early Christians considered that important. And uh, the the idea was that they didn't think that the history of Jesus, or for that matter, his life and teachings, were particularly important because they thought he was coming right back. You know, he said that I'll be back. You know, right. and to their way of thinking, that meant soon. You know, like next week, next month, next year, in sure. their lifetime, they weren't thinking. You know, thousands of years. And so they went out there to start telling people about the glorified Christ, and and mm-hmm. he did these miracles, and he was crucified, and he rose from the dead, and he's going to be back any day now. So you better get your act together. And so they focused on the highlights, the more spectacular aspects of his later life, and didn't consider the details of his childhood and his upbringing relevant to anything. And there wasn't any need to uh, to include that. And I might tell you another little story just to give you a sample of the kind of thing that's in there um, Jesus according to him is the greatest temptation you know didn't have anything to do with the uh, the devil or whatever but whenever he was a, a young man I believe around 20-21 years old he had already developed quite a reputation for his grasp of the uh, scriptures the Old Testament you know, mm-hmm. the Hebrew uh, Bible at that time, he was very ed- you know very educated. Uh, he spoke Greek and Hebrew. He was a musician. He was an excellent carpenter. He was a boat maker. He was just a multi-talented Renaissance man, you know, uh, by all means. And uh, his his ability as a teacher and his grasp, his insight, and his understanding uh, of the uh, the law the, and the, the Jewish teachings and so forth had created a reputation for him that that went all the way to Alexandria. 